let's pray this morning. I was struck, Lord, as we sang by the the simple description of You that we sang. You are holy, 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 and You are merciful, and You are mighty. And both those things come together in the in the cross of Christ, because it displays there of your your wrath that you are a mighty God, you're a holy God, who deserves our all, deserves complete, entire obedience, not only today but yesterday and five years ago and thirty years ago and ten years from now and fifteen years from now. You forever have been holy and you demand that. You are mighty and will destroy those who don't repent. And yet, you are merciful. You bring your mercy to us in the cross of Christ. So God, I'm thankful for those two things, how they come together. I pray that you would be with us now and show us of the glories of his work and what he does in us and through us. So I pray you'd bless the preaching this morning. I pray you'd bless the hearing. God, ever increase us in the knowledge of your word, and may that ever draw us to our Savior. I pray in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> well, we are this morning um, returning again to the book of Philemon, so I invite you to take your Bibles and open up there to the book of Philemon. Uh, several weeks ago, maybe it was about a month ago, uh, I preached a message which was the entire book, all 25 verses, to give us a, a, a thrust of... Um, of the whole book, and in recent weeks, and will continue in weeks to come, uh, as I'm saying, we want to milk Philemon for all it's worth. There are some lessons here that we are going to learn. I'm not necessarily looking so much exegetically pulling out exactly verse by verse, but looking for some themes of the things that we, uh, we're pulling out of here. We, we looked last week at verses 4 through 7, which really just spoke about how we have to build one another up identifying the evidences of grace in other people's lives and encouraging them with that. I was uh, appreciative and thankful this week that several of you took that to heart and um, said some very kind words to me, just how God's working through me, and for that I do, I do rejoice. And it, it built me up. And I just, you know, as a pastor, I need to do that more. Seek to find ways in, in your lives in which God is working and tell you of those, identify those uh, for you, and you'll be encouraged as well. Well, this morning I'm going to focus on verses 10 through 13, where Paul really gets to the heart of of his argument in this epistle. Remember, the whole epistle is about uh, a man that Paul met in jail. His name was Onesimus, and uh, he found out that Onesimus was actually a runaway slave from a man named Philemon. And Paul knew Philemon from Colossae and everything he'd heard there. Uh, He knew about uh, Onesimus there in prison. He said, Onesimus, you need to go make things right. But to send him alone may have been a death sentence. And so he sent him along uh, with this epistle. And sending him along with this epistle, he gives him the the core of the argument. comes in verses 12 through 13, which I'll tell you what it was in a little bit. I want to read verses 8 through 16, though, to catch the context. Paul writes to Philemon, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. Since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart 
whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. The core of Paul's argument really comes here in verse 10, which I want to read for you again. He says, I appeal to you for my brother Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Paul was arguing that Philemon take Onesimus back because of what took place in the life of Onesimus during Paul's imprisonment. While Paul was imprisoned, he encountered this man Onesimus and something changed in him that caused him to say to Philemon, I want you to take him back. And the key word in verse 10 is this word begotten. If you write in your Bibles, and I encourage you to, I would circle this word or put a box around it or highlight it or do whatever you do because this is the word that unlocks really the key to what happened in the life of Onesimus. Ultimately, this word right here, begotten, is the whole reason why this epistle was written. This word translated begotten is used all over Scripture to describe and speak about the process of a child being born. Um, Matthew 1, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 says how Jesus was born, he was begotten in um, Bethlehem. In Luke chapter 1, verse 57, tells about how Elizabeth had brought forth or given birth to John. Acts 22, verse 3, Paul says he himself was born in Tarsus. It's the same word, it's the idea of being born. And literally, you can translate this phrase here in verse 10 <clears throat> about Onesimus whom I have brought forth in birth. In other words, Paul is writing to Philemon, telling him that Onesimus had been born by Paul in prison. That's what he's saying. He's been born by Paul in prison. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul was pregnant with child. doesn't mean that Onesimus entered again a second time into his mother's womb. doesn't mean that. What it does mean is that Onesimus experienced a spiritual birth during his encounter with Paul in prison. Onesimus was, what you might say, born again. He was born from above. He was born of the Spirit. And the Bible frequently uses this word, born or begotten, to describe this spiritual birth that takes place. In fact, Jesus in John chapter 3 was talking with a man named Nicodemus and telling him, you need to be born again, right? You need to be born spiritually, is what he was saying. Peter talked about it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. God caused us to be born again. That's what it says, 1 Peter 3. In 1 John, there are six times in which this word is used to describe one who is born of God. Now, theologians call this term. Any of you know? What do theologians call this term? Regeneration. There it is. Regeneration, the changing of man from being centered upon his flesh to be centered upon the spirit. Wayne Grudem defines it in his systematic theology as a secret act of God in which he imparts a new spiritual life to us. And that's what Paul is saying here about Onesimus. There is a, a, an act of God that God did that imparted spiritual life to Onesimus. 
Louis Burkhoff defined it this way in his systematic theology. Regeneration is that act of God by which the principle of new life is implanted in man and the governing disposition of the soul is made holy. That's what happened with Onesimus. New life was implanted in him and the governing disposition then of Onesimus' life was changed to be holy rather than what it was before was sinful. And that's what Onesimus was. He was a changed man. God had done a work in his heart. God had done a work in his mind to open his blind eyes to see the glory of the gospel in the face of Christ. And with eyes opened and becoming a spiritual man, then he believed in the gospel of Christ, embraced Jesus, repented of his sin, and knew forgiveness of sins. And the result was that he had a disposition of soul in his heart that was made holy. And everyone who saw Onesimus could see the change in his life. Now, we don't know exactly what Onesimus was like before he was converted, but we do know that some kind of change had taken place. He was different than he was before. People looked upon his life and they could see it. It would have been obvious. Because every time someone changes from death to life, it's obvious. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God. That's what it means. It's obvious. You see, who is practicing righteousness and those who are practicing righteousness are born of God. As people looked upon the life of Philemon, maybe they saw a hateful man before who was turned to be a loving man. Maybe they saw an angry man turned to be a, a joyful man. Maybe they saw an anxious man turn to be a a peaceful man. Maybe they saw an impatient man become a patient man. Maybe they saw a violent man become a kind man. Maybe they saw a wicked man become a a good man. Maybe they saw a fickle man become a a faithful man. Maybe they saw a harsh man become a, a gentle man. Maybe they saw a wild man Saying and doing whatever he pleased, becoming a a self-controlled man. These are the fruit of the Spirit that would have been exhibited from him. And somehow he changed from being the opposite of that. The the fruit of the Spirit would have worked in his life so as to be that way. And some of these things may have been evident. Maybe all of them were apparent in his life. But any change that would have taken place in his life would have been wholly and completely attributed to the work of the Spirit of God in his life. And that's... How the Spirit of God works. When He comes to indwell somebody, He changes them. I've heard it said often. I think it's good. right? No Jesus, no change. No change, no Jesus. Because if Jesus is in your life, you will change. It's a great truth of the Gospel. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Right? When someone is in Christ, his nature changes. He changes from what he was before. He has new desires. Gone is hostility towards God and in is love for God. Gone is pursuit of sin and in is pursuit of Christ. And Paul uses this very fact to convince Philemon of taking this man back. He argues that Anisimus is a changed man. He's not the same guy he was before. He's not the same guy who was hateful at you and caused him to run away. No, you should take him back again because he's a changed man. My message this morning is entitled, The New Creature. 
in my message, I want to focus my attention upon verses 10 through 13 and see in those verses three characteristics of Onesimus which testify to his changed nature. Because we're going to see one in verse 11, one in verse 12, and one in verse 13. And I believe that each of these characteristics of Philemon are also true of every believer in Christ who is born again. And so by way of outline, I want to take these three characteristics, but turn them into questions. As I turn them into questions, I want you to seek your own heart and seek to answer these questions for yourself in your own life and just say, you know, am I, are these things true in my life? These are characteristic of a new believer, of a, of a changed person. Are these in my life? And I would have to say, though, that these aren't exhaustive characteristics of a regenerate person. There are many things that, um, that are, are true of a changed man or woman of Jesus Christ that aren't listed here. In fact, these I wouldn't even say are the most crucial, but they are indicative of every believer and they are sufficient to expose your soul if you haven't experienced a new birth before. So you ready to take a test this morning? Are you a new creature? At the end of my message, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper, right? The Lord's Supper is for changed people. It's it's for those who desire to rejoice in what God has done for them. The bread and the cup aren't some magic ritual that we do, Christians, to be made right before God. It's what we do in celebration of what God has done for us in changing us and transforming us to give us a new life. So here's my first question. Question number one, verse 11. Are you useful? Are you useful? Paul tells Philemon that Onesimus formerly was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. Now, these are pretty strong words if you think about them. When Paul looked at the life of Onesimus, he labeled his former days of slavery as useless. We don't know what type of worker Onesimus was, but... To me, it seems lawfully unfair if you would call him useless. I'm sure he did something useful. Perhaps you parents out there who have children know a bit what it's like to have a worker at home that disappoints you. You guys know what that's about? With some, some degree of regularity, some degree, maybe getting less and less, I hope, right, SR? I hope getting less and less regular. But there are some times when mom or dad gives an instruction to one of our children to do this or do that and the, and the command goes unheeded. Your parents know about this? And uh, we have a saying around our house, something that we've begun to say. SR, what have we begun to say when you do that? Yeah, you guys are blowing smoke in our eyes. And our kids know what that means because we've been quoting this verse to them, Proverbs 10, verse 26. It says this, like smoke to the eyes and like vinegar to the teeth, so is a lazy man to those who send him. In other words, it means this. You, you, you give someone a command, you tell someone what to do, and they go off, but there's laziness about them and they don't get it done. The response of the one who sent them is irritation. It's like, like smoke in the eyes. You've all been at a, a campfire, right? You're sitting around and everything's going well, right? Until the wind starts blowing your way and the smoke gets in your eye. What do you do? You like kind of back away and you turn your head and you, you kind of you go like this and try to get out of the smoke. Well, that's what it's like when you send someone to do a task. Even a child, a son or a daughter, and they don't do it. And even a slave, right? You, or even a, an employee. You, you tell them to do a task and they don't do it. It's like they're blowing smoke in your eyes. But even 
however frequent that is in our house, I'm far from saying that any of our children are useless. I mean, there are many things that our children do around the house that are very useful. And certainly that must have been true for Onesimus as well. No doubt he he wasn't a happy slave. He probably grumbled and complained against Philemon. And whenever there's grumbling and complaining, it always stirs up more grumbling and complaining. And so there's probably he was a, a poor slave causing rebellions in the ranks. But I do believe that it's difficult to say that he was of no use at all to Philemon. Even if his work done was half-hearted, there still was some usefulness. And so I I don't think you take Paul's words here exactly literally in in every sense of the word. I think what he's trying to do is is set up a contrast. I think he's using hyperbole a bit. A couple weeks ago, I told you of how um, this is a play on words. Onesimus comes from the Greek word, which means profitable. He's kind of saying profitable. Now he's finally living up to his name, Philemon, because now he's profitable. And he's trying to show by hyperbole of how great the former Onesimus was to the present Onesimus was. In fact, if you put them side by side, he said the former Onesimus was useless. But now this guy, the new and improved Onesimus, is useful. And with that observation, what Paul is getting at is a simple reality that a regenerated soul is a useful soul. A regenerated soul is a useful soul. When one comes to faith in Christ, it makes him better. It makes him a better worker. When one comes to faith in Christ, it makes a man a better husband. It makes a man a better father. When a woman comes to faith in Christ, it makes her a better wife. When a child comes to faith in Christ, a girl, it makes her a better daughter. It makes her a better friend. When Jesus comes into your life, every single relationship that you have is changed, and it's changed for the better. That's what Paul's getting at here. It is useful now. It is better, both to you and for me, is who he is. See, when the Spirit of God comes and dwells a soul, there's a new perspective on life. No longer do you look at life at what you can get, consuming it on yourself. Rather, you look to, at life at what you can give, and you want to give. Peter put it this way. He said, fervently love one another from the heart, For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. The idea there is that you should um, fervently love others from the heart. Why? Because you've been born again. As you're born again, you will fervently love. And as you fervently love people, your relationships with people will skyrocket in profitability. They will go well. Peter's saying it's fitting for you to love the brethren to the max because you've been born again. Because being a new creature changes everything. You ought to love others with a whole heart. And as a slave, Onesimus would have returned to Philemon with an entirely new perspective. Onesimus now had come to faith in Christ. And the new heart of Onesimus would be to fervently love Philemon from the heart. And rather than serving his master with external service as he'd done before, Onesimus is going to return with a desire to serve Philemon with sincerity of heart. As a believer in Christ, Onesimus was now under a new master. It was the the Lord Jesus Christ who was his sovereign ruler. And so as he served Philemon, ultimately, really, he would serve him as he served the Lord Christ. His heart would be to serve Philemon as heartily as he would have served Jesus. And it would have made a radical change in the way he served Philemon. Philemon wouldn't have had to 
constantly be watching over his work because Onesimus knew that the eye of the Lord Almighty was always upon his work. One of the things we have been struggling with as a family, we had a family meeting yesterday just talking about how, guys, we have to be there to keep telling you what it is you need to do. When we get away, what happens? You're just not doing it, so we got to be there. But we want to bring you to the place where mom and dad are out of the scene. You're no longer under our watchful eye, but we quoted Proverbs 15, verse 3 to them. The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. We said, you guys need to realize that as you do your service, you do your work, or do your chores around the house, you're doing it for the Lord. And He's always watching you. And Onesimus would have understood this. Philemon wouldn't have had to keep over him, wouldn't have had to try to intimidate him or threaten him because his service would come from within where once he was useless, now he's useful. And so now I ask now about you. Are, are you useful? Are you useless? Think about your work environment. Are you useful in your work environment? Do you work hard? Think about your marriage. Are you useful in your marriage? Husband, wife, loving each other, serving each other. That's what use is. Are you useful in your parenting? Do you die for your kids? Do you love your kids? Do you affirm your kids? Do you lift them up? Do you edify them? Do you discipline them? Are you useful in your marriage, in your parenting? Kids, are you useful? Are you around the house helping your parents? Are you saying words that build them up? Is your service rendered with love and passion of heart or is it all just external? Because a truly useful one is one who's been changed inside. His soul has been regenerated and he then will work itself out as being a useful man. Usefulness is one sign of a regenerated soul. Let's look at the, the next sign. Here comes a verse 12. My, my question for you this, my test. Are you loved? Are you loved? Now, Notice what I'm not asking. I'm not asking, do you love? I'm asking a different question. I'm asking this question, are you loved? See, one of the characteristics of a regenerated soul is that he becomes dear to those in the body of Christ. Now, it's not that we're lovable in of ourselves, except Andy Krause. He's lovable. It's not that we're lovable in ourselves, because the truth be known, we're not. Rather, it's that God has done a work in the life of the redeemed to transform them more and more into the image of Christ. God so works in us and so that our, our passion and the object of our affection, the object of our, fee, of our speech is Christ. And, and here's the fact, is that as other believers see Jesus in you, they will be attracted to you. And, and you can't deny their attraction to you. You will be able to say, they love me. Not because me, I'm special, but because God has changed me. I have a desire for God, and they have a desire for God, and they love me. Now, that might sound a little strange. You might be thinking, you know, that, that, that doesn't sound real biblical. I mean, that's what I thought when I, I looked at this. <laughs> what a strange thing. Are you loved? Then I read 1 John 5, verse 1. Listen to what that says. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. There he is. He's begotten. He's changed. He's regenerated. And whoever, another person, loves the Father, loves the child born of Him. 
You see that connection? said, anyone believes that Jesus the Christ is regenerated, is a changed being. And anyone who loves the Father loves the child born of Him. So if you are changed, the testimony of the Christian community, of those who love God, they will love you. And so that's why I ask you, are you loved? That's an evidence of being born again. Now, as I'm asking this question, I'm not getting at your longings to feel loved. I'm not saying, do you feel like you need to be loved? And I'm not even asking you, what are you trying to do to win the love of others? Because it shouldn't even be that you're trying at all. Rather, I'm simply asking you this. Has your life been so transformed by the Spirit of God that other Christians in the body have identified with you and love you because of your love for Jesus? That's what I'm asking. I know of some of the most unattractive people in the world by the world standards that I love immensely. You might call them down and outers. People who have no friends in the world. People who aren't physically very attractive. People who mentally, you know, maybe they're not all the way there. Maybe socially their skills aren't so good. But, but I love them because I see that God shines through them. And I want to be with them because... I'm attracted to them because I see that God is working in them in great ways. I think this is what Paul's getting at here in verse 12 concerning his love for Philemon. He says, I've sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart. He says, this man Onesimus has become very, very dear to me. And we're going to see in verse 13 that, you know what, it's not like Onesimus probably had all these great gifts. He may have been a somewhat uneducated slave errand boy, which we'll get at a little bit. But Paul loved him. He said he had a heart for him. Saying goodbye is always difficult. It's always difficult. And in the ancient world, the sheer distances of travel would have magnified things. Here Paul was going to send Onesimus a thousand miles away across land and sea from, Phil- from Rome back to Colossae. It takes a month or two or three to get there, depending upon the winds. If he would ever come back, it would only be six months later, even if he came right back. He doesn't know. He might stay there in Colossus. It might be years. He might never see him again. It's hard. And so Paul wanted to communicate with Philemon the extent of his love for Onesimus. And so he gives him this word picture. To send Onesimus is like... Is like ripping open my chest, taking out my heart, and sending my heart away. You know, the heart is the the instrument that, that pumps the blood, that keeps and sustains the life. It's almost like he's saying, my life is going as Onesimus goes. Now, that's not quite true. That's not quite the picture he uses here because he didn't use the word normally translated heart, cardia. Cardia is the word that pumps blood. It talks about the innermost being of a person. Rather, he used a different Greek word here. Paul used the word splachna. Splachna. I love this word. Anyone know what it means? Greek scholars out there, splachna. Yeah, that can be intestines, your bowels. So if Paul says this, it's like, and I send Onesimus, it's like you ripped open my my belly and took out my large intestine and sent him to you. That's what he's saying. Now, it doesn't quite translate so well. That's why all the translators, except the King James, translated heart. 
but the idea is there. The idea in the Greek was, was the fact that um, when you love, your stomach churns. Right? Do you remember when you saw your future wife for the first time, man? You, the time you realized, boy, I really love this woman. I'm going to marry her. Your stomach just kind of churns. Or maybe there's some anxiety that you have with work or some anxiety of the future or finances, right? What happens? Your stomach churns. It's the, the deep seat of emotions is what Paul's getting at. He's saying, my emotional affections are tied up with Onesimus and they are great. It descends to the depths of my innermost being. And when I think of being separated from him, it's my stomach and my internal, internal organs have great churning. That's what Paul's saying. But I think what Paul is saying is more than that. It's not just talking about a mere sentimental love that he has for Onesimus. I think he's getting at putting on display the bond that's formed among fellow born-again creatures. He's saying, I have a bond with him because I've begotten him and he is special to me and to take him away is, is really ripping a portion of me. It speaks about the bond of, of Christians. It speaks about the bond of those who have been born again. They say birds of a feather flock together. Pigeons flock with pigeons. Seagulls flock with seagulls. And those who are born from above flock together. I I remember being in college. We uh, went to a small school and had one cafeteria in the whole school. All thousand students, whoever on board. 800 students, whatever, ate in the same place. And it was always interesting to see these people eat together and where they would sit. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? is uh, the, the, the people of the Fiji house would all sit together here, and those of the Beta house would all sit together over here. And the thespians, they'd be way over in the far corner, right? The soccer team would always eat together. The football team would eat together. The cross-country team would always eat together. Men's and women's really mixed together at that point. Now, many people at college got along with one another. That wasn't the problem. The, the issue was is that they, there's a common experience that all these people held. Either they lived together or they were on the same team together or they took the same classes together. And they're all together because of a common experience. And that's why the church gathers so naturally. On the one hand, the church is composed of a diverse group of people. We have different ages here. Some of us are younger. Some of us are older. Some of us are 10 years from being old. My daughter told me recently. Some of us are in different socioeconomic ranges. Some of us are different race, different ethnic origins. And the church is, is different, but the church is made up of all those who have experienced this common thing called the new birth. And the church isn't just a place where everybody gets along. The church is a place with a group of people who have been transformed by the power of God. And we... We come together because of a transformed nature. Birds of a feather flock together. We're different than the rest of the world because of what Christ has done for us. He's changed us. And believers in Christ are fundamentally different than those in the world. Peter puts it well in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, when he calls the believers in Christ aliens and strangers. We're like different from the world. And because we're different from the world... We are drawn to those who are the same. Our common experience of being transformed right, has given us a love for each other the world just simply doesn't understand. But there is a love among the people of, of Christ. I remember at Kishwaukee Bible Church, it's really being pressed upon my heart, <clears throat> we had a, a woman come into our congregation who um, 
experience the life of everything I'm talking about. Experience the, the Christians just loving each other and just being different than the world. And though this, this woman grew up in church, her testimony to me later was, Steve, when I went to that church, I, when I went to your church, when I went to Kishwaukee Bible Church, I, the people there, I thought them to be weird. Is what she, That's the word she used. She used weird. And the reason why she thought it was weird is because she'd been in church their whole li- her whole life without sensing the, a love of people together and a love for God. She said when she came into our church and saw the church gathered for worship, they really wanted to sing. They weren't just kind of mumbling their words. When they gathered together, they were very attentive to the word being preached. They had a, a genuine love for God. They talked about God. And they had an affection for others. It's really no different than Rock Valley Bible Church. Certainly we can get better at those things. But those things are present. And she said being around those, that environment had a transforming effect upon her soul. Soon after attending our church, she experienced a new birth. Believing the gospel of Christ. And that's her testimony. The testimony is when she came into this... This group of people who are changed, it affected her. And that's getting at the heart, really, of what Paul is saying with Onesimus. He's a changed man. He's been regenerated. He's an alien here upon the earth like the rest of us. And because of that, I have an affection for him because he's like me. And as he goes away, it's ripping my heart out. And so my question to you this morning is this. Is are you loved? Are you a loved member of the Christian community? Not because you're great, not because of things you do, or do people love you because of what God has done for your soul? Are you becoming more and more like Jesus when they see you? Do they see Jesus? And in seeing Jesus, are they attracted to you? That's a characteristic of all who've been born from above. They are loved. Let's look at my third characteristic here, verse 13. Are you helpful? Are you helpful? I get this from verse 13 where we read Paul's perspective of Onesimus. He says, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. Now, really with these words, Paul's explaining how Onesimus could be to him, how helpful Onesimus could be to him in prison. He said that Onesimus here could minister to him. It's the word diakoneo, from which we get the word deacon. It's often translated service or active service or do you serve? It's a real common word in the New Testament. I don't know why they translated it minister. It should have been translated here so that on your behalf he might serve me in my imprisonment for the gospel. It's a better thought. Minister, it's the same same thing. But this, this word serve is used often. It's used of serving tables. It's used of serving guests. It's used of Christ. Even the Son of Man didn't come to be served but to serve. And how do you serve? He sacrificed greatly of himself, giving himself upon the cross. That's what this means is that uh, the one who serves puts himself into the submission and service of others. And Paul says, Onesimus is one who might serve me while I'm in prison. And so I, I began to ask my question this week about, well, how could Onesimus serve Paul? I mean, in what ways could he have served Paul? You're just really trying to think about the situation there in, in prison. And, and I think about how Paul was in prison. His personal needs weren't real great. I mean, he was, he was in prison. He needed food, certainly. Um, maybe from time to time, some new clothes. Maybe some worn out. Maybe some parchment so he could write some letters to churches. Maybe some study tools. 
Maybe a copy of the Scriptures. Maybe a cloak for the winter time. So Onesimus may have helped him by um, bringing him food. Onesimus is a free man. I mean, he was free. He wasn't, in, he wasn't a prisoner. He was free to be able to go back to Colossae. So maybe Onesimus um, brought food, went to the marketplace and brought food for Paul. Maybe that's how he served Paul. Um, maybe Onesimus ran errands for him. Oh, can you go to the store? Get me some Tylenol. So you better go in there, right? Maybe Onesimus worked to earn some money so as to be able to buy the food to provide it for Paul. Maybe he was giving financially in that way. I was thinking about some other needs that Paul had. Paul probably had need for encouragement. I mean, he was there in prison. He couldn't go anywhere. If anyone was going to see anyone, they were going to come to him. And it can be a depressing time. You're in prison. Maybe, maybe Onesimus served him by just being with him. Talking with him. Maybe Onesimus was a, a, a courier sometimes. In, uh, in the sense that Paul said, boy, I'd really like to talk to um, you know, Shalom down the street. So Onesimus said, I'll tell you what, I'll go get him, I'll invite him. And so Onesimus became his telephone maybe to bring a message. He said, hey, Shalom, Paul wants to talk to you. Why don't you come and talk to Paul? That's a way Onesimus could have served him. I think, though, Paul's heart for the lost was great. Being confined to the prison reduced his evangelistic opportunities. Maybe Onesimus was one who went out to the streets and talked to people and said, yeah, I've got a great message for you. Why don't you come and talk to this man in prison? And maybe he brought evangelistic contacts in to see Paul in prison. Maybe. Maybe Onesimus was one who could do some follow-up with those who were interested about the gospel. He brought unsaved people in. They heard about the gospel from Paul. They went out. They had some questions. Maybe Onesimus could go and answer some of these questions. But he was certainly a new convert being begotten in prison with Paul while he was there. So he's a new convert. So in-depth discipleship Onesimus probably wasn't capable of doing. Maybe he brought these guys, new believers, along to come and be discipled at the foot of Paul as he was being discipled as well. We don't know. But other than that, I, I find it difficult to imagine what, what, what more he would have done to serve Paul's in his days of prison. Now, as I ask you, do, do those things seem significant, what he's doing? You know, to me, they, they didn't sound really significant. But don't think for a moment that they are insignificant. Paul didn't think they were. <laughs> Paul didn't want Onesimus to leave. Paul wanted Onesimus to stay and help in the ministry whatever ways he could. He greatly prized the ministry of Onesimus. In fact, he wanted Onesimus to stay and help him. Right? Verse 13, I wish to keep him with me so on your behalf you might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. And, and what's even more astonishing here is when you realize the number of faithful servants who are around Paul at this time. I mean, look in Philemon, verse 23 and 24. We read there of five different men. All these men are very well trained in the ministry and can do work for him. There's Epaphras, there's Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. Epaphras was a church planter. He planted the church in Colossae. He had an influence also in Hierapolis and Laodicea, about 10 miles away, each of those cities. He was a gifted man, evangelist. He was a praying man. <clears throat> So we saw in Colossians, Mark was with him. And yes, Mark had failed Paul before, but later Paul would say that Mark is useful to him. And I think that Paul's usefulness to him came probably right here when he's with him in prison, really ministering and helping. 
Aristarchus was with Paul in prison. Aristarchus had been with Paul several years in the ministry. Aristarchus was so bold in his preaching that he was almost taken and killed by a mob as he was preaching publicly to the wise people of Athens in the auditorium. Demas was with Paul. Later he defected from the faith, but there was a time he was laboring right alongside of Paul. And I don't think Demas was an uneducated, unsharp guy. I think he knew what was going on. He's a little bit like Judas. Luke was with Paul as well. In fact, when you chase Luke's story through the book of Acts, you discover that he was with Paul in many of his missionary journeys, spending years with Paul, hearing Paul speak much. He was probably his personal physician, very bright guy, capable of writing more of the New Testament than Paul did even. He could have done many tasks that Paul asked him to do. And on top of that, there may have been more. When you read the book of Colossians, which is written the same period, Paul mentioned a man named Justice who Paul identified as a fellow worker who was a great encouragement to Paul. And there may have been more. And so my question to you is this, why was Paul so emphatic about his desire to keep Onesimus with him to minister? It's really because Paul valued any service that anyone gives for the cause of Christ. And the last one really comes to us. Never, ever, ever minimize any service you do for the Lord. I don't care how big or how small it is. It's useful. It's helpful. It's a sign of one who's been regenerate. I mean, think about this. Jesus said, whoever in the name of of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Even a cup of water is significant in God's eyes. The size of the service doesn't matter. What matters is the fact of service. And for this reason, Paul decided Onesimus would be able to stay with him to minister to him because he's ministering, he's helping. And so I get back to the question this, are you helpful? Are you serving? Onesimus shows us it's not great gifts or abilities or responsibilities that's important. What's important is to take what God has given you and use that then in the service of other people. Peter says it better than I could ever say it. He says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Right? That verse says we've all received something, and whatever God has given to you, use it. Even if it means being an errand boy like Onesimus was, then be an errand boy. At our house... We have a, a boy, one of my, my, my son, who um, sometimes we call ice cream boy. When it comes to dessert time, we say, okay, ice cream boy, do your job. And he goes like this, and he runs downstairs, he gets his ice cream, and he brings it back up. And we have the ice cream, and as soon as it's all scooped out to everybody... I take my ice cream and I give it to ice cream boy. And ice cream boy, again, turns and he goes and he puts it downstairs. It's his job. It's valuable to us and we appreciate it. And that's a term of affection more than it is a term of derision. But Onesimus was errand boy. Run to my errands. And he was like this. I'm going to go do your errand for you, Paul. What is he going to do? Because that's what God had given to him. If you are a writer, then be a writer like Luke was. 
If you're a teacher, then teach like Aristarchus was. If you're a praying man, then pray like Epaphras did. Are you helpful? Now know that my message this morning isn't a call to serve. That's not my message this morning. My message is to evaluate your life whether you are serving. That's my message this morning. Are you one who serves? Because one who serves demonstrates a characteristic of a regenerated life, which is ultimately a new creature. Are you a new creature? That's what we're looking at this morning. Those who have been born again by the Spirit of God are characterized by a willingness to serve others, whatever it might mean in your particular situation. And I would encourage you even to look at Onesimus doing the little things for Paul to really help him and serve him. And as Philemon was a servant of God, it was an indication that he had a changed heart. And so really that's my question to you this morning. Do you have a changed heart? Are you a new creature? Has God opened your eyes to see His glory and His majesty, that He is a mighty God? Has God opened your eyes that He is a a merciful God to see the grace that's yours in Christ Jesus? He's merciful and mighty. Has has He shown you that? Have you seen that, believed it, trusted, embraced it, and has He transformed you? As I close my message this morning, I want to read for you, again from a book, from a a man named Ray Comfort. Maybe some of you are familiar with this guy, Out of the Comfort Zone. He's like a fiery evangelist. And I'm reading his book because I want more of that in me. And I've been reading this book this past week, and he describes his conversion He used to be a a surfer boy, thinking about nothing else other than surfing. And he said one time he went on a surfing trip, apart from his wife, just with his friends. One of his friends' name was Graham. He said, Graham and I spoke for six and a half hours that night. And during that time, I found myself confronted with the fact that I had violated the Ten Commandments. One scripture sank like a sharp poison arrow into my heart. You have heard that it was said of old... You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It was the death of me. If God created my mind, He could see what He had made. He saw my thought life. I was guilty of the sin in my heart a thousand times over. I knew that I'd be condemned on judgment day and end up in hell. I was trapped, a guilty criminal in the prison of divine justice. Suddenly the door began to open. Jesus Christ, God in human form, came to this earth and suffered and died in my place and took the punishment due me. He paid my fine. He alone is the keys of death and hell. For the first time in my life, the gospel made sense. I learned that the Bible says the whole of creation was subjected to futility and death because of sin. When Jesus came to this earth, He took the curse of sin upon Himself. That's why He wore the crown of thorns. That's why He died on the cross. And then He rose from the dead and defeated death. And Graham told me that if I would repent and trust in Jesus Christ, God would forgive my sins and give me the gift of everlasting life. Would I? Oh, would I? I asked God to forgive me for violating His commandments. I gladly embraced the Savior as a dying man. As As a man dying of thirst grabs a cup of water, it was then I found... The God who gave me life. I went to bed at 3.30 that morning as I drifted off to sleep. I had a fear that what I had found would be gone when I awoke. It wasn't. In fact, it was so real for the first time in 10 years, I didn't want to go surfing. I was quite happy to sit and read the Bible. That was very strange. It was in the Bible that I read about what happened to me. 
The incredible peace I felt was what the Bible referred to as the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Philippians 4.7 I didn't just feel peace. I felt like a new person. My eyes fastened on 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The Bible seemed to come alive as I read its words. It's a testimony of a transformed soul. And my question to you this morning is simply this. Have you experienced the new birth yourself? Onesimus had. We read of some of his fruit this morning, right? The new birth made him useful. He was instantly improved. His work ethic increased. The new birth made him loved. Those who were Christians around him immediately identified to the life of God in him and it made him helpful. He had a heart to serve in the ministry of the gospel. Now certainly there are other ways in which the the life of the Spirit of God works in the soul of man. I've not even touched on them. All who are born of God believe that Jesus is the Christ. A new creature has a desire and longing for the Word of God because God puts that in the heart. Those who are born again have a desire for righteousness, 1 John 2.29 says. A regenerated soul will manifest the life of the Spirit. But our text compels us this morning to look at these three characteristics of Paul. He's useful, of Onesimus. He's useful, he's loved, he's helpful. Are you a new creature? You know, being a new creation is difficult because it's something you can't do. Something you can't do. In fact, there are theological discussions about which comes first, regeneration or faith. You know what comes first? Regeneration comes first. Someone's eyes are open to see the marvels of Christ and then they believe. We're entirely passive when it comes to being born again. That's why 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, God caused us to be born again. It's not us who did something and tried to do some trickery or tried to do this and then we're born again. No, you're born again and then it becomes clear, even as Ray Comfort said. It's very interesting. The next paragraph to Ray Comfort said this. On this trip, we told Brian, another surfing buddy who was with us, what happened during the night. Brian was raised in a Baptist home, but he had never been born again as I had just been. He said he desperately wanted, however, he desperately wanted whatever had happened to me. So that night, we tried to duplicate my experience. We waited until it became dark, went into the same room, turned down the light, and we prayed. Nothing seemed to happen. It's not a switch you can just turn on and off. It's a, remember what Wayne Grudem said? It is a secret act of God. And Wayne Grudem has this, this uh, section I, I read in preparing this this week about the mysterious ways in which the Spirit of God works. Jesus said the wind blows where you don't know where it blows. You can't concoct it. God's got to born you again. He's got to cause you to be born again. But Brian went away disappointed. His problem was he didn't believe, didn't trust, didn't find the conviction of sin. God had not worked upon his heart. But the exhortation to you this morning is not so much to wait for the regeneration to happen to you, but it's to believe and trust and cry out that God would make you a new creature. I know in disciplining our kids, that is my prayer time after time again. God, I pray you'd give Stephanie a new heart. In fact, Stephanie knows this really well. She always prays that God would give her a new heart because she needs it. And that's what she needs. 
She needs God to give her a new heart. And so I ask you, do you know anything about this? If you don't and you want it, can you plead to God that He would change you? If you want it, plead to God. Repent of your sin. Cry out to Him. And see yourself a changed person. Well, one of the joys a believer in Christ has is the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And uh, we are going to celebrate that here this morning. Scripture tells us that um, we should always do so in a time of self-examination and self-reflection to examine ourselves. And really the question today is, are you born again? Because the, the Lord's Supper is for those who are born again. And if you're not, if you know nothing about that, this is the bread passes, this is the cup passes, just, just let it go. But I encourage you, on the basis of this message today, cry out to God that He change you. Say, as Frank Yonke said in his message a couple weeks ago, often, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me. I want to believe. Right? Open my blind eyes, Lord, that I might see. Just do those things. And perhaps next week, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, you will um, embrace Christ and take the Supper. Well, let's pray. Lord, I would pray this morning as we do what we have done so many times before and here during the season of Lent, we will do it every week. Remembering Your death, celebrating the victory of Christ on the cross. I pray, Lord, this would never be a a ritual for us, but I pray that it would be a, a joyous time where we take this bread and we take this cup, we reflect upon what You have done for us. We reflect upon our lives, how we're living now. Saying that we are living lives worthy of the calling the calling with which we've been called. Not harboring up sin in ourselves, but um, God seeking to do whatever it takes to be transformed by Your power into the image of Jesus Christ. And so God, I pray this would be a special time. I pray it would be a time of rejoicing. I pray it would be a time of reflection. Even as Jake will play some songs for us reflecting upon the cross of Christ, may it, may it cause us to remember Him it causes us to rejoice in what Christ has done for our soul. Pray in Jesus' name.